I can't tell you how many times I have heard someone say, oh, the news is just so depressing these days from all over the world. And I have a lot of sympathy for that because it does seem like that a lot of the time, right? But there are important stories from around the world that can give us an idea of what is happening right here at home too. For instance, the rise of what we call populism, where the rules of what used to be acceptable in public and what isn't have now kind of been upended right? Candidates can seemingly say things and do things that years ago would have meant an end to their political career, but now gets them elected and they seem to thrive on it. Amanda Taub is an international affairs reporter at the New York Times and has been writing about this. She joins us now. Amanda, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Is this a trend that you see happening all over the world? Absolutely. So I have been focusing a lot of my reporting on the rise of particularly right-wing populism, but sometimes the left-wing version as well around the world for at least seven years now. Um, And it's been very interesting because, of course, every country's flavor of populism varies a little bit depending on the particular circumstances of their politics, their culture, their history, etc. But there are some real similarities in the themes that um, come up. and, And one of them is exactly what you said, this idea that the old rules no longer apply and that these politicians can kind of get away with saying and doing things that would have ended careers just a few years earlier. So how do you define populism? What is the thread that connects these things together? So I think the simplest way to describe it is that populism is a type of politics that claims to be representing the real people against the illegitimate elite. And, you know, who the people are and who the elite are can vary. Um, But that tends to be the message. And so in right wing populism, there's often a real kind of racial or xenophobic tint to it, where they claim that the country is being invaded or taken over by some sort of outsider and that the mainstream politicians are failing to stop this. So this is something you see in Europe where um, populists tend to rail against immigrants um, and it came up in fairly similar ways in some of the things that you heard from Donald Trump, particularly when he was first running in 2016 and so much of his campaign was focused on illegal immigrants. Right. What is the what is the role of political parties in all of this? So political parties in most democracies for, you know, the kind of most of the modern era, kind of particularly post-World War II, but also before it, political parties were really a kind of gatekeeper institution. So because parties controlled who had the resources to run a campaign, who had the resources to get their message out in media, who had the resources to run advertising, who could get access to things like debates that would be covered for free by the media, etc., political parties really got to decide you know, as a first cut, who could even have a chance of getting elected? Obviously, politicians still had to please voters, but Mm -hmm. it meant that there was this extra layer of control. Um, And there were other kind of similar gatekeepers. So mainstream media organizations, such as, you know, prominent radio hosts or newspapers definitely (laughs) played a role. Um, Back in the day, they might have played a role. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. As I think we both know, things have really changed. Yes. And so that was true for, you know, most of what people think of as the sort of modern democratic 
era. Right. And, but but also those, poli- decades, yeah, I was going to say those political parties back in the day had more of a gatekeeping role, right? Because it's not like everybody could decide who the candidate is, whereas now it feels like there's much more participation in those political parties. Yeah, so things have really changed, and they've really changed for a few reasons. Um, One is actually that because it has become so much easier for people to do the things that parties used to do, so you no longer need a political party to help you get your message out to mainstream media. You no longer even need mainstream media. Um, You know, you can turn to social media, you can turn to direct email, you can, um, you know, do a lot of things like that that can gain attention without having to go through one of these gatekeepers, that that has really weakened political parties. Um, And in some countries, that weakening has been really significant. Um, So in the United States, for instance, there were changes to campaign finance rules that also made it much easier for donors to go straight to candidates um, with large amounts of money rather than having to go through political parties. Um, and that has had this this huge effect, um, particularly because, you know, there were a few different types of weakening that happened all at the same time. You know, we talked a second ago about the media. Um, the proliferation of social media and new media and sort of the catastrophic collapse of the advertising market for media has really weakened those institutions as well. So these groups that used to be these all-powerful gatekeepers and really had the power to decide if somebody's career was over, if they said something that was outside the bounds of what was considered acceptable political discourse, they just no longer have that kind of power. Right. And you're seeing this happen in countries all over the world. Is there a thread that, that kind of runs through these? Um, So I think that there are probably a few threads. So one is that um, the, the, you know, this type of kind of populism, particularly on the right that demonizes outsiders, um, it tends to hit very similar tropes all over the world. Um, And I think that is in part because we're in an ever more connected world. And a lot of these organizations actually talk to each other. So, you know, I was in Brazil a few years ago reporting on um, how social media was helping supporters of Bolsonaro in Brazil. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of these young Brazilians were talking to me about um, things that Steve Bannon had said and things that they had seen on YouTube uh, about on um, PragerU channels and things like that. Um, So it really has become globalized. Um, I think another common thread that tends to give this kind of thing a heightened effect is the type of political system. So in something like a parliamentary system, um, I think this hasn't been as significant, in part because when you have multiple parties, it's more difficult for sort of one charismatic politician to really take over a major party. Um, they tend to, you know, parties tend to be in coalitions. It's harder to to sort of gain as much um, as much sway over them as you can in a two party system. So that's meant that they can have, um, you know, more impact in places that have two party or presidential systems. Um, and the other thing that I think has been a real theme has been that 
this also has the most effect in countries that have had some sort of political crisis, which, you know, for separate reasons has maybe undermined one of the major political parties or both of the major political parties. So to go back to the Brazilian example, they had a huge corruption scandal before Bolsonaro was elected that I think really made people much more open to this populist message that the, the elite were corrupt and flawed because there was so much evidence of corruption within mainstream politics. Wow. Have you seen anything, though, that can help guard against situations like this? Like, does anything work or is this just part of, you know, the, the flow of history, how things work? I think that there are a lot of things that can blunt the impact of this. It's just that the difficult is the difficult part is that they're very difficult to construct fast. So you know, I mentioned that there seem to be protective values that come from being a multi-party parliamentary democracy, um, because you know when you can have a multi-party system, that makes it difficult for any one party or one leader to gain too much outsized influence, and also. In a parliamentary system, parties have an additional form of power, which is that they tend to have more direct control over their list of candidates than in a system where candidates can, you know, run on their own ticket or in an open primary where they can um, you know, sort of go directly to the people. Um, so those things, I think, can really matter. It's just that it's very difficult to construct them quickly. It's very difficult to make wholesale changes to the structure of a political system that's already been in place for a long time. Um, and I think when it comes to other kinds of other kinds of factors that can sort of um, help a country, I guess, keep the center holding a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, those probably depend much more on the specifics of individual countries. So, you know, particular elites might be able to, you know, strike particular types of bargains with each other, um, or there might be particularly strong civil society groups, such as trade unions um, or religious organizations that could have an effect. Um, but the circumstances of that can really vary. Wow. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It was so interesting. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk.